0: Hey, welcome to the Sacred Flame Podcast. It's me, Matthias Nordvik. On this podcast, I'm exploring our ancestral story worlds. Some call them myths and mythology, but I think they're much more than that. Our ancient stories are the foundation narratives that can bring us back in balance. We need an archaic revival, a new force that's sourced from the old forgotten knowledge that was once transmitted in living stories and sacred settings. So let's gather by the sacred flame and revive the old ways of creating community in the world. Let's listen to nature. Let's listen to the inner flame. Let's reconnect with our ancestors and cultivate the right relationships with the other than human beings in the world. In this episode, I'm talking about ritual and magic, things that I know a lot of heathens out there are searching for answers to. I'm not going to give you a step-by-step guide to how to do these things. Because there isn't really one. I'll tell you what I think ritual and magic is. How I think we should approach these things. As always, undergirded by the wisdom of our ancestors and wise humans in our distant past. As well as I know them, I guess. And of course, as is customary for me, I'll let you make up your own mind about the subject. But before that... I'll tell you an exemplary story on this subject. This story is about Thorfinn Karlsefni, who went to Wienland, and his opposite crew, crew member Thorhatler Weidemadr, the Huntsman. And as the brilliant Bohemian composer Gustav Mahler once said, tradition is nurturing the flame, not worshiping the ashes. Thanks for tuning in. Oh, and before I get to the story of the day, uh, I just want to let you know that if you're interested in my translation of the Prophecy of the Sierras, Verus the second edition, now with Baldur's dreams, um, it has been released at the hyldia.com. That's uh, h-y-l-d-y-r.com. And there you can also find my translation of the Danish and Norwegian rune poems, as well as the little book of Viking Age symbols that I've written with Joseph Hopkins and Jackie Alberts, who has created the art for it. So don't hesitate to get these cool books now, because stocks are already running low. And now onwards to the story. And this story begins at the time when Thorfinn Skazepnyi, and his crew had reached Strömfjöder in Wienland. They'd sailed across the sea from Greinland to Hetland, then southwards to Bjatne, uh, crossed over to Markland, and reached Wienland. There they found an island that they called Strøme. It was full of birds and wildlife, and Thorfinn and his men collected many eggs and fish, but over the course of the winter, their supplies began running low, and when spring finally came, the fish were hard to catch because there were harsh storms that were raging all around the island. Now a man among Thorfinn's crew was called Thorhatler. Thorhatler had long served Erik the Red as a hunter before he joined Thorfinn's expedition to Vinland. And it is said about him that he was a large and strong man. The Icelandic saga even describes him as black like a jörhtun, generally silent. But when he did speak, he exuded evil, and he had often advised Eric the Red to do the worst deeds. Now, he was, according to the saga, a very bad Christian. And despite all of this, the saga says, he had joined the generally God-fearing household of Thorfinn and his League of Good Christians on their journey to Vinland. Now, when the food supplies began running low, Thorfinn and his company were praying to God. But Thorhatler did not join them. Instead, he disappeared. As Thorfinn and his crew found themselves starving, they began searching for Thorhatler, wondering where he went. And they spent three whole nights and days looking for him until they found him on a rocky promontory in Strömfjöder. He was laying there, looking straight into the sky, eyes and mouth wide open, mumbling words that none of them understood. And they asked him why he was laying there, um, but he replied that it was none of their business. And then they asked him to come back with them to the settlement, and he did so. Now, shortly thereafter, a whale beached on the shore by their settlement. None of them recognized the type of whale, but they decided to cut it up and cook its meat. They feasted on the whale meat for a while, but soon they all got a stomach ache. And then Thor said, I do find that the red-bearded one was more helpful to me than your Christ. I got this for my skaldskapper, and I composed a poem for Thor, my protector. Rarely has he ever failed me. But when Thorfinn and his crew heard this, they took the whale meat and they threw it back into the ocean. And then they went back to praying to God. And soon after the weather changed, and they could row out to sea and catch fish again. And then they weren't lacking for food any longer. And then after that, they were also capable of finding animals on the mainland, and finding eggs and birds on the island, and they were fishing in the sea. But Thorhattlur told Thorfinn that he wanted to go north along Þörðrstrandr, and Thorfinn said that he wanted to go south along the coast. And then Thorhattlur gathered eight men, so that they you know, all made up nine together, and then he prepared his ship, and then he carried water onto his ship and raised his sails, and sailed away and was never seen again. So this is my own short version of a section of the Vinland saga, which I think illustrates some important details about how the Icelandic saga literature treats pre-Christian culture. The sagas that describe the journey that Scandinavians made to Vinland around 1020 CE are known as Erik the Red Saga and the Saga of Greenlanders. The Saga of Greenlanders is preserved in the Flatea Book Manuscript or GKS 1005 folio from around 1387 to 94. Eric the Red Saga is found in two different versions, one in Heg's book from around 1302 to 10, and another one in Skalholt's book from around 1420. So as always, we find that the stories in their written versions are much younger than the time that they are said to take place we of course know that Scandinavians reached the shores of inland North America in the form of the island that they called stream that we now call Newfoundland and that it was in roughly 1020 the remains of a Nordic building there is accurately dated to 1021 and the descriptions of the location in the saga generally match the area in Newfoundland. What we don't know, of course, is what actually transpired in that location. We don't know if the crew that went there first and foremost included a man named Thorfinn. It's likely because the saga is, after all, attached to um, these ancestral memories of Icelanders but we don't really know it. And we don't know if there was another man, as the saga says, named Thorvaldur, or a man named Thorhattor, or a man named Bjarni, or a woman named Freydis or a couple of Scottish slaves that had the ability to identify grapes so, and therefore called it Wineland or Vinland, according to the story. What we do know, however, is that finding wine having a little conflict about religion like the one that I told above, and encountering a group of quote-unquote savages in the way that the Skrælingar are described in this story, that all fits into a European pattern of representing the unknown reaches of Asia as a wild world where faith in God is compromised. Yes, I did say Asia. Because none of those learned men who were writing these stories in the 1300s and 1400s had realized that there was another continent out there, let alone more than one. Now, to the extent that people knew about a landmass to the west, they essentially thought that it was the easternmost part of Asia. And that's why Columbus showed up on the island that he called Hispaniola, and adamantly, to the day he died, virulently even insisted that he had reached India and those people that the Icelanders referred to as Skreiringar they were forever known after that as Indians because of Columbus alright so back to Thorhátler. what's at play here in this little excursus on food and deities is of course faith in God when you're uh, out there in the world, according to these saga writers, you'll find yourself in situations and moments where your faith will be tested by the naturally ungodly and heathen physical world, which always drives you toward the sin of the flesh, away from the piety of spirit, towards idolatry, and all of that. And this is what Thor represents. He has that inclination, right? He's described in the saga as an unagreeable man, dark of complexion, because there's also latent racism in this literature, and he's a worshipper of Thor, and he falls. He falls to the temptations of returning to the old ways, of idolatry, rituals to ungodly beings, worshipping old red beard. So that he can feed himself, enjoy the bounty, bounties of the physical world, but then, of course, lose the rewards of the spiritual world. He performs a ritual, a hunting ritual, a ritual that brings him a whale sent there by the wind racer, the one who braved the deep sea and caught Jarmugandar himself Thor. A pagan ritual, magic. And this is what today's episode is all about, ritual and magic. What is magic? What are rituals? And how did people do rituals back in pre-Christian times? How do we do these things now? So yeah, that's where we depart from. To think about a couple of important things concerning ritual and magic. And you might be wondering why I'm lumping ritual and magic together in the first place. You might be thinking that rituals, ceremonies, blot and symbol, as they're called in Nordic heathenry, um, are different from magic. Maybe you're even thinking that true heathens don't do magic. That's for all the witches out there or something like that. And I guess that might be the case today, maybe not. But at the end of the day, the only reason you might be thinking like that is that That one thing I keep coming back to in these podcasts, episodes over and over, the thing that changed European life forever, the thing you call Christianity. Mm -hmm. And I know that I sound like a broken record, but there's no getting around that phenomenon, this, this abrupt shift in religion that occurred in Europe. If one wants to fully understand what life was like before that shift took place, to understand these modern conceptions and separations of ritual and magic, we have to rewind to the medieval England, right around the time when those Scandinavians traveled to Vinland, the period between 995 and 1025, when Elfric of Eynsham wrote some 160 sermons during his lifetime. He was a very prolific author. Um, you see, Elfric was a very influential man, from his biblical commentaries to de falsis dies. Elfric has broadly defined how those members of the Icelandic clergy uh, that were writing the pre-Christian past in Flatea book, and Hög's book, in Höck's book, in book stories where we have the Vinland sagas, right? Um, how they thought about pre-Christianity, and heathenry. Without going too deep into Elphick's literature, I'll just sketch out some of his primary ideas about paganism. Now, if you understand Latin, for instance, you may already have picked up on the primary attitude in the sermon, the falsestis, the false gods. And that's what he thought about the pre-Christian spirits. Spirits like old Redbeard, they're false. They're demons, they trick us. They're there to gather souls for Antichrist, for Satan's army, or whatever. And that's why people of faith, proper faith, like Thorfinn, immediately get rid of the whale meat that has been procured by unsavory heathen means, skaldic poems dedicated to Thor. Poems like that, and any other rituals that change the order of things, or mess with God's creation, mess with its plan, are bad actions. They're against the natural order. They're black magic, as Elfrick would have said. The medieval church in Europe generally distinguished between white and black magic, acceptable magic and unacceptable magic. If you listen to the previous episode of this podcast, episode 10, the one on witches and the spectacle of modern life, you probably remember that prior to the 1500s, attitudes to magic in Scandinavia were generally that if the type of magic that was practiced was harmful, then it was cause for punishment. But if it weren't, then it wasn't such a big deal. White magic, for instance, to an abbot like Elfrick of Ainsum, was divination, and he saw divination as another form of reading God's plan. So that wasn't such a big deal. That wasn't a big problem. And this is where those sentiments in medieval Scandinavia came from, a man like Elfric. But cavorting with devils, on the other hand, that was naturally bad. Rituals to spirits of all kinds, false gods, as he would call them, would be exactly that, cavorting with devils. Because you'd be communicating in his eyes with agents of the devil. So the separation was not so much magic versus church ritual. The separation was more uh, acceptable forms of divination and healing rituals plus church rituals versus harmful rituals and rituals dedicated to all other spirits than God and his known agents. Now, I think I also mentioned in the last episode that the church wasn't single-minded about such things as witchcraft labeling things as witchcraft, until Pope Innocent VIII's rule, where he recognized that witchcraft did exist sometime in the late 1400s. Until then, the debate went back and forth, and the church took many different positions over the centuries, often gravitating to the notion that witchcraft was simply just an illusion, a mental illness. Now, what that means is that it gets really difficult for us to sift through rituals and magic in the Nordic story worlds and then classify these as good and bad and all of those things. One thing that we can see, however, in the saga literature from Iceland is that the writers were generally lenient toward their ancestors. They allowed for considerable room for actions and beliefs in the stories about their heroic ancestors that would, at the time of writing, most certainly incur severe penalties, if not execution. So when E. Skatlakrimson performs his famous rune magic ritual to avoid drinking Queen Gunnhild's poison, where he carves runes in the drinking horn and smears blood on it and all that stuff, he is most certainly performing a ritual that was anathema to the author of the saga when it was written in the 13th century. And the same is the case when he turns the Landwightier, the land spirits, against Queen Gunnhild and King Eirik Bloodaxe. or Bloodax. But he gets a pass because he was a great hero and an important ancestor. An ancestor who lived in heathen times, so he couldn't have known better, according to the saga writers. He practiced the rituals of the day. And that was just that. But what really constituted magic in medieval Scandinavia? That's that's a big question. We can identify five kinds of magic, both in the written sources and in the material sources. These five kinds are romance magic, magic for fortune, magic for health, weather magic, and malediction. Romance magic, weather magic, and malediction would certainly in most cases be considered harmful. Malediction literally means that it's intended to harm people. But romance magic and weather magic would be considered harmful insofar that these types of magic were manipulation of the natural world and of people's minds or hearts. Fortune magic was harmful if it involved communing with the devil, like, for instance, in the case of Rangwald Odinskarl in 1484, who stood trial in Stockholm for having pilfered several churches and served Odin for seven years. But fortune magic was not harmful if it simply involved reading fortunes, prophesying about the future and attempting to understand God's plan. And that's why the elusive ritual Ganga til Fretta, which is so often referenced in the Icelandic sagas, that's the moment where the settler-to-be in Norway learns that he must go to Iceland. That that is an acceptable form of magic. It's just divination, reading God's plan. And if the authors had any kind of misgivings about the ritual, was uncertain about whether it was okay, they would relegate the action of reading God's plan, gangatilfretta, Fretta and all of that, to an already lost soul like when the Völva and Vatnstela saga, the saga of the people of Vatstal, uh, prophesies that Ingimundr will settle in Iceland. She's a medium for that transaction of of Ingimundur, understanding God's plan. And here the saga author is of the opinion, it seems, that the divinatory ritual Gangatilfretta could involve communing with the with devils, so he relegates the divination to this already lost soul, a pagan oracle, and in that way he can keep the hero of the saga, Ingimundr in the clear. Now, weather magic, on the other hand, was understood to always involve communion with devils, so it would be a great offense in medieval Scandinavia. In contrast, healing magic was only consistently labeled some kind of devil worship, once the Maleus Maleficarum, Heinrich Kama's program to destroy folk magic, the Witch's Hammer, from 1485, had left a considerable trace in Nordic culture. And since healing magic was based in folk magic, ancient traditions, knowledge kept by women, the misogynistic program of the Witch's Hammer could, of course, not accept it. Only healing that took place in the church's ratified institutions overseen by clergy was now acceptable. And the reason that the church was concerned with rituals where people communed with the devil in the first place goes back to the Christian prohibition against what they call idolatry. As you find it in, for instance, St. Augustine's *De Civitate Dei, the City of God, in Book 4, in Chapter 1, where he says, quote, The false gods whom they openly worshipped or still worship in secret are most unclean spirits and most malignant and deceitful demons even to such a pitch that they take delight in crimes which whether real or only fictitious are yet their own which it has been their will to have celebrated in honor of them at their own festivals, so that human infirmity cannot be called back from the perpetration of damnable deeds, so long as authority is furnished for imitating them that seems even divine. End quote. So, non-Christian rituals in the period where Christianity was consolidating, when St. Augustine was writing in the early 400 CE, were considered worship of unclean spirits, malignant demons, celebrations of crime. This notion persisted as Christianity spread and consolidated outside of the Roman Empire, and it intensified in the medieval period, culminating with the fundamentalist doctrines of the early modern era, era when Protestants and Catholics began competing over who was the most Christian of them all, in the period from the 1500s and onwards. So wherever members of the clergy saw or heard such inappropriate non-church rituals, they cracked down on them as hard as they could. And the Icelandic loco Graugaus illustrates this sentiment very clearly. It goes, quote, mm-hmm. Men skulle troa au ein Gud, au au helga min hans, Quote. And that means men must believe in one God and his holy men and refrain from sacrificing to heathen spirits. A man sacrifices to heathen spirits if he consigns his property to anyone but God or his holy men. But alongside all these sentiments there are other things in development as well. We have the science of language and we have the science of physics and chemistry that were evolving. Now informed by the Bible and the story of the Tower of Babel, Christian European scholars have been interested in languages from at least the 700 CE writing treatises on etymology and the history of words. Treatises like Rabanus Maurus's the Inventione Literarum, the Invention of Letters and Literature, and Isidore of Seville's Etymologiae, or Etymologies, they all circulated among scholars from that period and, on, and onwards, um, and contributed to research in languages, and especially alphabets and letters. And then we have the works of Plato that were circulating as well. During Plato's lifetime, from around 423 to 348 BCE, Plato was heavily engaged in discussions about the nature of creation. And Hellenic philosophers like Plato and Aristotle supposed that at least four elements earth, water, fire, and air were important components in the creation of the cosmos and life itself. Um, Plato theorized that the confluences of heat and cold creating temperate climates was also an an important factor in creation. And these theories became so influential in the 12 to 1300s that they were considered common knowledge. In fact, Snorri Stöckleson's version of the creation in Etta from 1220, the well-known description of how fire and ice converge to create the primordial giant Ymir, is directly derived from Plato's work on uh, these theories of creation called Timaeus. I know a lot of people out there love to attribute it to badass Vikings and Icelandic glaciers and volcanoes or something like that. Like, just read Neil Price's Children of Ash and Elm and you'll get that impression. But all of that stuff is, in fact, just Hellenic theories of how the world was created that have been synthesized by an Icelander who infused it all with a cast of beings from his native story world. So, Platonic philosophy... But along with Plato's and other Greek philosophers' theories of elements and temperatures, the works of Arab chemists and physicists also reached Europe through the medieval period. The early 9th century scholar Jabir Ibn Hayyan's works, The Book of Mercy and The Book of Seventy, became relatively well-known in medieval Europe. And in the 13th century, an unknown European scholar began publishing under Jabir's Latin version of his name, Geber, consequently known as Pseudo-Geber. The 10th century scholar Muhammad Ibn Imayl al-Tamimi's works, the book on silvery water and starry earth, and Epistle of the Sun to the Crescent Moon, two works that made added use of Hellenic and Egyptian philosophy, also entered European scholarship in this period, and the former was reprinted under the title The Chemical Tables of Senor Zadi in various European literature. And this is how the Aristotelian theories of the elements were reintroduced into European medieval chemistry. The elements that you may be familiar with from such things as sacred geometry and oracle decks that make use of them. Air, water, fire, earth, and ether. With the introduction of Arabian literature, the word magic also entered European vocabulary. That word is derived from the magi, the word used for the priests of pre-Islamic Iranian Zoroastrianism. Magi in plural, magus in the singular, came to mean sorcerer thanks to its transferal into European languages from medieval Arabic, where the word magus meant or means heathen. In medieval Europe, the figures of these Eastern Magi were preoccupied with such things as changing the form and shape and chemical makeup of earthly materials, reading the sun and the moon and the stars, and knowing secret languages, going back to that old tradition of researching languages. And just for reference, that Merlin guy with a pointy hat and a robe with the sun and moon and stars on it that you may have seen in Disney representations, he got his outfit from European representations of the Magi. Now, along with all of this, there's also the Hermetic texts. It's a type of cryptic literature that circulated in the Mediterranean in the medieval period and early modern period. Um, The Hermetic texts are written by unknown authors, and some of them are as old as the 300s BCE, while others are from as late as the 1300s CE. These texts are very eclectic, um, as a, as a literature, and they're attributed to a mythical ancient magician named Hermes Trismegistus. And by some, they're even believed to be the last surviving literature of the Great Library of Alexandria. Now, the Christian philosopher Lactantius, who lived between two hundred and forty and three hundred and twenty C.E., believed that Hermes Trismegistus foresaw Christ's coming. And this was then later also reaffirmed by St. Augustine. So the literature got a pass in in Christendom as these prophetic mysteries prefiguring Christianity. However, it's not that likely that there's... Ancient figure named Hermes Trismegesmus is more likely that the hermetic texts belong to a pre-Christian knowledge tradition, which was once associated with the god Hermes, who had merged with the Egyptian deity of wisdom and letters Thoth in the Ptolemaic Greek kingdom in Egypt when it was in, ex- in its existence between 305 and 50 BCE. The type of Hermetic texts known as the religio-philosophical Hermetica were written between 100 and 300 CE in Egypt, and they have like this very revelatory feel to them—a revelatory feel that's very similar to both Christian and Islamic texts. And that is, of course, because ultimately Christianity and Islam derive from. This specific type of mysticism that emerged in the meeting of Hellenic Greek philosophy, Judaism, and Egyptian religion primarily. And that happened in the Ptolemaic kingdom. Now, the most influential portion of these religio-philosophical hermetica is called the Corpus Hermeticum. And a copy of these was translated by an Italian scholar named Massilio Ficino lived between 1423 and 1499. Massilio Ficino worked on many different things, but he was particularly interested in Plato's works, and with Cosimo de Medici's help in Florence, Ficino founded a platonic academy there. Now based in Plato's philosophy, Ficino devised a perennial philosophy or philosophia perennis, as it is called, a type of thinking about history and knowledge that um, gained traction over the centuries and became very widespread when Gottfried Leibniz took it up again in 1714. Now, perennial philosophy essentially believes that there is a discernible core of truth in many, if not all, knowledge traditions, even if they appear different on the surface. And that way of thinking has later then become a core element in most New Age traditions today. Now, the primordial tradition, as it is also known, was promoted by Ficino and one of his students named Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, who also developed a Christian Kabbalah system based on old Jewish mysticism, again also in the late 1400s. Now, Kabbalah was originally introduced in Europe in the 1100s, but it was with giovanni pico della mirandola's christianization of the system that it became more widely accepted since he promoted it as a type of letter magic again going back to this research tradition in letters and language a letter magic that harkened back to the primordial tradition so from the late 1400s kabbalah hermeticism aristotelian and platonic philosophy and then arabian chemistry and physics all came together in European thinking as an alternative to the strictly biblically derived knowledge tradition that had hitherto been promoted in academia. These thoughts and ideas were received differently by different rulers and the courts and at different times and in different locations. And sometimes they were well received. At other times they were considered heresy and witchcraft. And at other times they were just received with a high level of skepticism. Now, one of the biggest points of concern in Europe when it comes to all of this was the subject of transmutation, transforming substances, living beings, existence, from one shape to another. And this question became ever more important after Heinrich Kramer published The Witch's Hammer because in there he makes it clear that, quote, whoever believes that it is possible for any creature to be transformed into any other shape or likeness except by the creator himself who made all things and by whom all things are created is without a doubt an infidel and worse than a pagan, End quote. Now, this is, of course, a, a quote that pertains to living beings. But for a time in European history, the question also raised about whether it would relate to materials and alchemy. Eventually, it was settled that alchemy, the reshaping of material things, was okay in the eyes of the Lord, and it was, in fact, a way of working with God. That's how alchemy was formally separated from magic. Now, the foremost expression in Europe of the idea that alchemy is separate from magic, and, in fact, the process where one works with God not against him, materialized in the 1600s as Rosicrucianism. Rosicrucianism emerged as a fictitious secret society described in three anonymous texts published in the German cities of Strasbourg and Kassel between 1614 and 1616. These texts describe the life of Christian Rosenkreuz, who led a secret fraternity of alchemists and sages that were bound by an ancient doctrine, the primordial tradition. Rosicrucianism combines Kabbalah, Hermeticism, alchemy, and Christian mysticism, claiming that these practices all harken back to the perennial truth about God's creation, the primordial tradition. And after the publication of these works, um... Rosicrucianism gained traction because the German physician Michael Meyer, who lived from 1568 to 1622, publicly professed to be a member of the Rosicrucian order, and then claimed that the order had its origins in ancient Egyptian religion, Brahminic scripture, Hellenic philosophy, the Persian magi, and the Pythagorean mysteries. The Rosicrucian societies blossomed along with the Freemasons in the 1700s and 1800s and then paved the way for fantasies about an ancient wisdom and science about the nature of the cosmos in the European popular mind. However, alongside these mysteries of language, chemistry and physics and the secret brotherhoods and the alchemical pursuit to make gold and all of that stuff, we also have another tradition that was circulating in Europe. And this is the tradition of the magical seagulls, mysterious signs, symbols, drawings that somehow reveal the secret of the universe, the tree of life itself. This is also known as the tradition of Solomonic magic. Now, this tradition mostly took the form of books on black arts, grimoires that listed the symbols and made them recognizable to those who were interested primarily in catching witches in the 15, 16, and 1700s. The most famous book on this subject is the Clavicula Salomonis, the Key of Solomon. This book exists in multiple versions in different manuscripts that are written in Italian, in English, and in Hebrew from the period from the 16th to the 18th centuries. Now, one of the oldest versions is the Sloan 3847 manuscript, which is an English translation titled The Clavicle of Solomon, revealed by Ptolemy the Grecian from 1572. Ptolemy the Grecian. This attribution to King Ptolemy, the founder of the Ptolemaic kingdom in Egypt, naturally connects the Solomonic seagulls to the hermetic mysteries, alchemy, and all of these things, and basically ends up with this claim that all—all all this stuff has their origin in Ptolemy in Egypt. Again, it's also one of the reasons that the Great Library of Alexandria is, is is involved in all of this, right? Okay, so the history of the Key of Solomon, despite these claims, is rather nebulous before the 16th century, and it is unlikely that this tradition actually dates much farther back in time. Um and definitely not to the 300s BCE. It is most likely that the texts rest on shoulders, the shoulders of, of medieval Italian grimoires, influenced by Jewish and Arabian magical traditions. And when we dig into the sources for all of this, a, uh, another interesting book known as the Lemigitan uh, can be very illustrative for all of that. This one was uh, compiled from multiple sources as late as in the middle of the 17th century. One of the recognizable sources, clearly recognizable sources, to the Lemegade's one is the engraved Calendarium Naturale Magicum Perpetuum, the magical calendar from 1582. And This was a calendar that was originally made by a Flemish engraver, Theodore de Brie, who lived from 1528 to 98. Another seeming influence uh, may be a grimoire called the Heptameron, attributed to the Italian astrologer Pietro de Abano, who lived from 1257 to 1316. The Heptameron is actually a book on ritual magic for conjuring angels. Now, a third source to the Lemugiton is certainly Heinrich Cornelius Agrippas' De Occulta Philosophia Libri Dres, three books of occult philosophy, which was written in 1531 to 33. But the most prominent influence on the work is the Dutch demonologist Johan Weyer's Pseudomonarchia Daimonum, the False Monarchy of the Demons, in his witchcraft treatise De Prestigis Daimonum, on the illusions of the demons, from 1563. Pseudomonarchia Daimonum relies on a French necromantic grimoire from the 15th or 16th century titled *Livre des Esperits, which has occasionally been attributed to the same King Solomon, who is said to be the guy behind the key of Solomon. Now, an aside to all of this is all those Icelandic galtrabajki or witchcraft books with seals and symbols that so many call Viking symbols, even bind that we find out there, like the Viking compass or vague from the 19th century Huld manuscript. All of this stuff belongs to that same French grimoire tradition, which, as we have just learned, isn't much older than the 15th century. Okay, so these traditions the Solomonic seagull magic, al- alchemy, etymology, hermeticism, Kabbalah, the tree of life. All of this stuff comes together in a nice synthesis in Eliphas Levi Zahed's *Dôme et Rituel de la Horte Magie*, the Doctrine and Ritual of High Magic from 1854 to 56. Zahed is the father of modern magical traditions. All the stuff you see, In witchcraft stores and New Age stores and all that stuff. And all the stuff you see in Harry Potter, even down to the rose, is more or less the workings of that guy. And that is why so many out there have an evangelical or Catholic aunt or cousin or grandfather who thinks that Harry Potter's books are evil. It's also the reason that modern heathens, indeed anyone in the neo-pagan New Age realm of things, tends to separate rituals and magic rituals for gods and ancestors, and the doing of magic. Because Zahed is also the father of modern neo-pagan rituals. As you may have picked up from his book title, he's presenting us with a vision of high magic and rituals. The idea that there's some kind of like official type of ratified rituals, and then there's the secret kind of magic that people do in black robes with candles and symbols and, and on the ground and goat's blood in the corner and I don't know what. Well, the thing is that before Christianity, at least in the North, there was no separation of rituals and magic in a conceptual sense. Rituals were just Rituals. There's most likely a distinction between public and private rituals, but not one that was like, oh, now you're doing magic over here, and while you're doing rituals over there, or something like that. This distinction was not because of any discernible difference in which spirits were communicated with or how they were communicated with. It was more likely because of who were communicating. Public rituals were supposed to be seen by everybody, so it was an official business. And when the great sacrifices took place at Uppsala in Sweden, or Leithra in Denmark, every ninth year, they were meant to be seen, they were meant to be experienced by everybody. They were spectacle. To the extent that uh, Adam of Bremen, in his report about the sacrifices in Uppsala in the history of the Archbishopric of Hamburg Bremen from 1070, decried the fact that Christians in Sweden were mandated to both contribute to the sacrifices and participate or pay a massive fine. Because public rituals were entwined with power, the elite, the rulers of society, nobody could detract from that. Their purpose was display, the spectacle, the spectacle of power, riches, prosperity, reverence. I can think of no better story from the Nordic story world to illustrate this than how can the good's botched Yule ritual in the Norwegian king's sagas. So in the saga of Håkon the Good, the poor king has returned from England, where he was baptized and raised a Christian, only to find that his kingdom is full of heathens. The power balance is frail, and he is dependent on the strong northern elites in Møre, the earls of Hladir, represented here by Sigurdr, the earl. And so he goes there for a blot. And here's how it goes according to chapter 17 of this saga Quote At previous occasions, the king had stayed in a small cabin with few men and eaten by himself. But the peasants of Hladir did not like that and asked why he did not sit in the high seat to the delight of the people. The earl said that the king did not need to do that, but eventually it turned out that Haukon sat himself in the high seat to make the peasants happy. But when the first horn was filled with mead, Sigurd the Earl spoke before it and hallowed it to Odin and handed it to the king. The king took the horn, but before he drank, he made the sign of the cross over it. Then Kauri of Greeting said, Why does the king do that? Does he not want to pull And Sigurd the Earl then said that the king did what Anyone would do who believes in his own might and strength, and hallowed this horn to Thor. He made the sign of the hammer over it, and this appeased everyone, and the evening went smoothly after that. But the next evening, when, they, when everyone had taken their seats, the peasants all gathered around the king and told him that he must eat the horse meat. The king refused, and then they asked him to at least drink the soup that was made from the meat, but he wouldn't. And then they asked him to eat the fat, but he wouldn't do that either. And when all of this seemed to be going very poorly for the king, Sigurd the Earl stepped in to ease the tension. He asked the peasants to stop pestering the king, but in turn, he asked the king to at least open his mouth over the pot handle, where the smoke from the cooking of the horse meat had settled and made it greasy. And then the king went over to the pot and put a piece of linen over it and opened his mouth, and then he went back to his high seat, and everyone was dissatisfied. End quote. Now, while this story is almost certainly made up and full of falsehoods, for one, that the king, King Hauken, was a devout Christian. Other sources have it that he was an apostate who was baptized in England Um, but then went to Norway and did not care about Christianity at all. Um, Now, this story does nonetheless give a very likely account of the attitudes that people had or could have had concerning public rituals. The attitude was that it was the king's obligation to participate, to eat the sacrificial meats, to drink the hallowed meat, all of that stuff, because his participation was meant to ensure that peace and prosperity aur frieder, would reign in the coming years. And if he failed at participating, the harvest would be in jeopardy. There are even some instances in some of the literature of, of kings beca- getting sacrificed because the harvest failed. So this was the order of things as it had been imposed by rulers in Scandinavia who sought to use rituals as arenas for politics. The story of Haakon the Good represents the people as some backwards pagan farmers who demanded that this poor Christian king participated in the rituals because that's their customs. This is, of course, because the saga author had an interest in representing King Haakon as a good Christian rather than what he really was, an apostate. because the author is trying to make it look like Norway was a Christian kingdom longer back in time than what was actually the case. Now, Haakon most likely just came back to Norway and slipped right into his role as sacred king. According to tradition, a royal high priest who presided over the public rituals and ensured that people paid taxes to him and believed that he was responsible for the good crops so that he could stay in power. That power spectacle had evolved from a situation where people assumed that their ritualistic acts had direct impact on the physical world the biosacral worldview, as we call it in scholarship. The idea that we can affect biological processes through our religious activities, the idea that ritual would change the course of events, the course of history itself, that ritual manipulates reality, that exact thing that we see medieval Christianity turning hard against. Now, if the king did something else, then people would assume that the fabric of society itself would be ready to break. The bonds holding existence together, the bonds holding the Jöhtun bound, would break, and Ragnarok would ensue. Now, there's nothing to suggest that people didn't think the same way about private rituals, we of course, don't have many sources to illustrate private rituals because, well, the sources mostly speak of public matters and leave out the inner lives of individuals and the menial aitir, the, the common folk. But in Sigvater Thordason's Oesterfadervisur, we get a glimpse of how outsiders are treated during private rituals. Sigvater lived between nine ninety five and ten forty seven, and at some point in his life he was sent on a diplomatic mission by the Norwegian king Magnus the Good to Earl Rangval Ulfson in Vesterjutlan in Sweden. Somewhere in the forest on his way there, a forest called Askol, he came to a farm named Hof and asked for lodging. In his own words this is what transpired. Rétk til hóss at heiva, hörð was áttur en spurtumk. In settak nef nennin níða lút fyrir utan. Orðgatk feist af fyrðum flukt balk en þeir söktu. Nekdomk heidnir rekkar heilagt við þeir Gakat in qual ekia, army dranger, en lenga, ek bid oddens, erb heathen ver, raydi, ruger quask, in the ega othek, sus mere necti, alva blot sem ulvi otmian, e bicenum, which means. I resolved to aim for Horth. The door was barred, but I made inquiries from outside. Resolute, I stuck my down-bent nose in. I got very little response from the people, but they said it was holy. The heathen men drove me off. I bade the ogresses bandy-words with them. Do not come any farther in, wretched fellow, said the woman. I fear the wrath of Odin. we are heathen. The disagreeable female, who drove me away like a wolf without hesitation, said they were holding a sacrifice to the elves inside her farmstead. All right, now, again, we have to keep in mind that Sigvater was Christian, and he was turned away exactly for that reason, so all the perspective we have on this situation is essentially his Christian perspective. But if these heathens feared the wrath of Ordin for letting a Christian man stay with them during Alba Blot, as it has since been called, then their thinking is in line with what happens at public rituals. Don't upset the order of things, lest the spirits abandon you. Maintain the order, do the right things, and you'll appease the powers, manipulate reality, ensure good harvest and prosperity, Our okfrider. Before we continue this episode, I'd like to take uh, this opportunity to encourage you to support me on Patreon. A lot of time and energy goes into researching and putting my thoughts together, recording and editing. Um, So it's great to have some support for all of that. Now, to support the work that I do on the Sacred Flame, um, you can pop on over to Patreon and sign up. You can find the Patreon for the Sacred Flame under my name, Matthias Nordvik, M-A-T-H-I-A-S-N-O-R-D-V-I-G. And I only have one tier that's asking for support in the amount of $10. That's pretty much the cost of a cup of coffee with a blueberry muffin and tips, at least where I I live. Um, And if you support me, you'll help grow the podcast, enhance its quality, and widen its reach. There'll also be goodies for patrons, including the original manuscripts for each episode, special access to other things I create like books and events, and of course, a chance to communicate directly with me, because I always respond to patrons. And if you can't afford it, don't worry about it. I'll still make sure that everyone gets a new episode of the Sacred Flame every month. That's the beauty of community support. Those who have the means will nurture the flame, and those who don't can still enjoy its warmth. And now, back to the episode. So, private or public, it didn't really matter. The idea was the same. Ritual transforms through relations. Relations are at the heart of it all. As the heathen Syrian philosopher Iamplikus, who lived from 242 to 325 CE, said in De Mysteris Aegyptum, The Mysteries of Egypt. Chapter 7, quote, it is better, therefore, to assign as the cause of the efficacy of sacrifices, friendship and familiarity, and the habitude which binds fabricators to the things fabricated and generators to the things generated, End quote. And then later on in, t- in chapter 10, quote, from all these actions, a common utility is imparted to the whole of generation. Sometimes through cities and people or all various nations or circumscriptions more or less extended than these. But at other times, through houses or an individual, these causes impart good with an unenvying and exuberant will, unaccompanied with passion, conferring the benefits with an impassive intellect according to adaptation and alliance, One friendship at the same time, which connectedly contains all things, producing this bond through a certain ineffable communion, end quote. Friendship, bonds, communion. And that's what ritual is about. That's what magic is about. That this was at the core of Nordic traditions is evident, not only in the previous examples that I gave, the examples that talk about relations in so many ways. But also in Ahmed ibn Fadlan's description of the Rus sacrificial ritual in 921 on the banks of the Volga River in his Risala, Ahmed ibn Farlan describes how a merchant is having bad luck selling his goods. So he goes to the spirit pillars and prays. And then he gives the spirit pillars gifts in the form of food and drink. When he finally gets the deal that he wants in his business transactions, he butchers some animals and offers a portion of the meat to the spirit pillars, and another portion is used for public feast. And the merchant also gives alms to the poor. Now, on the surface, this ritual looks self-serving, right? The man just wants a good deal. And this is certainly the interpretation that you'll find, even further applying, um, a similar attitude that the Christian authorities in Stockmo- Stockholm also had to Odin's Odinskall's seven-year service of Odin. These rituals are disingenuous, they're vulgar, there's no real devotion. But this is where heathen practices differ greatly from Christian and Islamic attitudes. Our relationship with spirit is not based on our personal individual bond with God as much as they're based on communal bonds, family bonds, a bond of friendship, the ite-bend. And that is evident in Rus merchant's actions. His profits are shared, they're doled out to the community. Now, a system like that can, of course, be taken advantage of. And I certainly think that that was the case in Imperial Rome, for instance, during various stages of plutocratic and monarchical ruling Greece. And... In the late Viking Age, in Scandinavia, as we have seen in those examples of Uppsala and maybe Halkun the Good as well, the public sacrifices, as they are described in the saga literature and by historians like Adam of smack of what St. Augustine criticizes about pagan traditions. Not just because these accounts were written by Christians, but also because they actually did seem to go in the direction of public spectacles. Public spectacles that are designed to uphold power more than anything else, much like the late Aztec and Maya rituals that took place around the time when the Spanish landed in what we now call Mexico. This was certainly also the case in pre Christian Rome, which gave us the saying bread and circuses, a derogatory phrase that characterizes a mindless people's relationship to their despotic rulers will accept anything as long as they have food in their bellies and entertainment to look at, right? And this, I guess, is true for many, but if we examine the history of power, we will learn that spectacular ritual behaviors like public sacrifices, or indeed the gladiatorial fights in, Col- in the Colosseum, do not have much to do with animistic or heathenry or polytheism as such. There's no intrinsic immorality tied to non monotheism, to heathenry, to polytheism. And pagan rituals are no less immoral, disingenuous than Christian rituals, neither then nor now. No, power develops on its own terms, regardless of the religious system in place. A pagan priest can be just as corrupt and immoral as a Catholic cardinal presiding over a New Jersey diocese full of sexual abuse scandals. or a Preachers like Creflo Dollar and Jim Bakker, who materialize on your TV screen on some evangelical Christian network and ask for money, and tells you that if you give more money, then you will go straight to God. All of this comes down to a phenomenon in human history that may be termed charismatic politics. Charismatic politics, the politics of spectacle and appearance, the appeal of leaders to their followers by way of shine and glitter performance and theater is universal. From the Colosseum to Uppsala, to the temples of Egypt, to the Olmec ball courts, to Angkor Wat, to the great Zimbabwe, to Mecca, to the forbidden city, to the Vatican, to Liberty University in Lynchburg. Charismatic politics is the name of the game, not religion, not spiritual connection. And it was the critique of charismatic politics that ensured Christianity's emergence in late antique Rome. It was the critique of charismatic politics that was at the heart of what such writers as St. Augustine said. And that critique was inherited from the Old Testament where anti-idolatry sentiments abound, no doubt resulting from the Israeli experience of enslavement in Egypt and Babylon, The critique of idolatry, wherever it is found in the Old Testament, is generally framed in the same way. Those who make idols are foolish to think that dead things can function like living things. Those who make idols are vain, adorning their idols with riches. Those who make idols misdirect their attention and fail to see God. But there is a general difference here. A general difference between heathen attitudes and understanding of this and what Christianity is saying. And I think the quote I find most telling of this general difference between the heathen perspective and that of Christianity is in the book of Habakkuk 2.18. Quote, What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. End quote. There are two reasons this quote, in my opinion, perfectly illustrates the difference in our thinking. Asking what profit an idol is hints at a utilitarian approach to all things material. The author of this passage asks, what do you get from making an idol? And their answer is clear, they think you get nothing from it. And just like Ahmed ibn Fadlan's comments in his story about the Rus merchant, that the heathens give food to their idols and then the dogs come and take it at at night. But the heathens wake up the next day and believe their spirits have taken the food. The authors of the Old Testament thought that heathens were ridiculous and superstitious for making idols and communicating with them, wasteful with their riches, wasteful with resources that could be spent on trade and amassing wealth. And this attitude has essentially dominated Western thinking ever since. There's no rock that hasn't been turned on this planet by industrialists looking to squeeze every little amount of money out of it. And, but it wasn't always this way. Once upon a time, people on this planet did leave things alone, even when they knew that there were riches to be had from disturbing these things. They didn't dig everywhere, drill everywhere, and sow everywhere, and harvest everywhere, and go everywhere, and fish everywhere, and exploit everything. Some things, many things, were left to themselves because heathens knew that there's a balance that must be kept. And so it is with idols. Creating an idol is the action of allocating parts of your resources to non-use, non-exploitation, and sacrifice is the action of allocating some of your resources to someone else's use. If nothing else, just the location itself where it's placed. It doesn't matter if it's dogs that eat it or birds or insects or a hungry thief in the night. What matters is that the right relationships, the bonds, communion, have been fulfilled. And this is the difference between an exploitative worldview and a worldview that prompts you to only take what you need, not to overuse. This has been ridiculed by Christianity and Islam as superstition and stupidity. I believe that, obviously, Inanimate objects can perform the same tasks as humans. A superstitious belief that a figure that has been shaped by human hands has eyes and ears and a mouth that worked like those of the human that created them. Sure, just like there have been corrupt high priests, there's also been people who believed that. And just like there are lying politicians today, there are also people who believe those lies. But all sensible heathens, though, from the forests of Papua New Guinea to the cities of southern Asia to the plains of Mongolia to the floodplains of the Nile to the shores of western Africa to the mountains of the Andes to the deserts of southern Utah to the icy shores of the Arctic all over the world have always known that life is about relations, not about blind faith. Life is about your own creative powers, and that is the other argument against the quote from the book of Habakkuk. You know what? It's not a bad thing to trust in your own creation, to the contrary. To trust in someone else's creation is to leave your existence in their hands, something we do all the time. Like Thorfinn and his pious followers praying to God, while Thorhatler was out and procured them a whale. Sure, Thorhatler so is also said to have made a ritual in the story. Sure, the story says that they got a stomachache from the whale and all of that. Sure, sure, sure. But let's keep in mind that this story is almost certainly an invention, not an actual event. Let's keep in mind that if any of the story elements are true, it's most likely the part where they actually got themselves a beached whale in a storm. That's all. The Christian prayer versus the heathen prayer, the Christian Thorfinn versus the heathen Thor Hatler is all there to tell the audiences back in Iceland a few things about religion. Not because it actually took place, not because Thor actually sent a whale to anybody that made anybody sick. But you see, believing in your own creation is a theme in the story as well. Thorfinn and his Christian fellows don't believe in their own creation. They don't act. They sit around and pray to God for him to stop the storm. Thorhatla's heathen ritual is all about his own creation, skaldskapar. The word literally means skaldic creation, being created with poetry. And then there's the resoluteness shown by Thorhatla throughout this story as well. He acts instead of following Thorfinn. Why? Because he's a skilled hunter, a competent man, an accomplished human who can live off the land. His counterpart Thorfinn, on the other hand, relies on cattle that he's brought from Greenland. That's what the other parts of the story tells us. He brings a bull to Vinland, like a proper colonizer, a man who expects to exist like he did in Europe, anywhere else in the world, and impose upon new places his way of life, rather than working with the land and learning to live from the bounties that the place offers, like some guy in a giant camper van. And here's the bit from the Vienna story that I left out. The saga says that Thorhatler and his men traveled back to Europe and ended up in Ireland, where they were taken as slaves. A sad ending for a man who was so capable. Why? Well, I left it out because it's another one of those aspects of the story that only serves to portray heathens as wretched souls with bad luck. It's most certainly fiction as well, and it's only... Cut... And its only reason for being part of the story is so, so that the author can say to his audiences, back in ha haha, look at this stupid heathen who didn't follow his Christian leader. He certainly got his comeuppance in the end. Again, I highly doubt that that actually took place. The author naturally doesn't like Thorhutler. And his character, because he defied the demand of relying on God. He relied on his own skills and abilities. His character exists in the story to demonstrate this problem of losing faith out there in the farthest eastern reaches of Asia or whatever. And that's the difference between relying on God's creation versus relying on your own creation in a heathen perspective. To create your own things, you need skills, intellect, perception, and understanding. To rely on God, all you need is faith, as those preachers say. I'll put my trust in my own hands, thank you very much. Oh, but isn't that atheism? Not really. It's a mentality. A mentality and attitude to your role and place in the world. That goofy trust in a God that's going to respond to thoughts and prayers and solve all your problems if you just believe hard enough can be found in any religion and tradition. Just like charismatic politics, corrupt clergy, and snake oil salesmen. No ideology and belief or business partnership company. Golf club, HOA, electrical train hobby club, is free of that kind of people who usurp, people that are there to exploit their position and the common cause, and there's no mechanism to avoid them except really just one, and that is to send them packing when they emerge from the woodworks, knock them down with reason, sensible argument, and a solid handful of mockery. Now, animism, on the other hand, is an egalitarian cosmic structure, a web of relational bonds that extends from one person to the next, a human person to another human person, a human person to a non-human person, and so on. Animism is the recognition that as soon as you exist in a place, you're already in a relationship with a thousand beings, whether you want it or not. Animism is the action taken from that realization. It's the ritual the bond, the magic that is created by you as the primary nodal point in the web of your life when you realize that your immediate surroundings are inhabited by a multitude of spirits, living entities, some of which you may immediately recognize as living, others, you'll have to employ creative thinking to understand as living, but they are nonetheless spirits in your world. As humans, we're inhabited by that same spirit, the same spirit that everything else has. What that means is that it is intrinsic to our beings to be able to communicate with those other beings out there that are inhabited by that spirit. And our communication with such spirits is ritual, it's magic. We all have it in us to perform acts, say things, build and create, and open communication with the other spirits to trust in ourselves. It's not dogma that needs to be learned. Different traditions have different ways of communicating, and these ways have proven effective over centuries, millennia, eons. So it's advisable, in my opinion, to learn from a tradition, but in essence, you don't have to. Rituals that come from our personal will and interest in communing with spirit are the language of spirituality. There are personal expressions of signs, symbols, as the Greeks called them that allow us to send out bonds, see me, as the Einsteiners call them, to the creation. There's no relation between these two words, but I think it's kind of cool that they sound alike. However, this is why I don't teach ritual and magic, the actionable part of this communication in any public form. This is why I'm not out there telling people that Saga This and That says blood must be performed in this exact way and so on. This is why I'm not out there preaching orthodoxy and orthopraxy for heathens. I believe that everyone has the capacity to create these ways of communicating on their own and that they should cultivate these practices in the idir, away from the public eye. Like the heathens of Hof and Eitskoker during their Alva Blot. Because I'm not in the business of charisma politics. I'm in the business of promoting independent thought. Now, some years back, I wrote a book called Also True for Beginners. The story about how that book came into existence is actually a bit silly. You see, I was approached by one of these publishers that do data mining and only pay their authors commission fees for writing books for them. This means that the deal for writing a book with them is that you sign over all your rights. And certainly a bad deal, if you think of it. But at the same time, I was planning on leaving the U.S. and going back to Europe. So I figured that the commission fees would be a nice handful of money to get set up over there and start a new chapter in my life. Now, the publisher initially approached me about a book with a very different topic than I was for beginners. They asked me if I was interested in writing a children's book about the Nordic story world. And I said yes, thinking that it would be a nice little contribution to American culture... A book with Nordic stories written from my perspective, a mix of heathen upbringing, animism, the stories told in the ancient texts, and some creative input as well. So it did it, and Norse mythology for kids was born. And By the way, the opening story in that book about the loon diving down in the primordial ocean has not been nicked from Native Americans. I've gotten some questions about that from people who know similar stories from indigenous story worlds. And some readers out there have wondered if I took that from a Native American story and, and, and used it without any attribution, and that's not the case. The story belongs to a very common theme called the earth Diver motif, which is present across North America all the way to Siberian, or through the Siberian expanse to Scandinavia. The story has been told by peoples all around the Arctic Rim, including some of those who eventually became my ancestors in the Eastern Baltic, The Sami, the Finns, the Crane, the Veps, the Chut, and the Kusiniecki, and so on. Now, I use the motif as a way to resolve an age-old debate about creation stories in the Nordic story world. There are essentially two creation stories. One is the earth-diver motif, which is alluded to in Viral The Prophecy of the Cirrus, and may also be working under some of the layers of the Emiya story in Sneris Etta. The other one is the Killing of Emea, where the gods use his body parts to create the world. That story actually also has counterparts in Native American story worlds. For instance, in the Haudenosaunee creation story, where Sky Woman's flesh becomes the soil and her head becomes the sun. It's not exactly the same as the Nordic story, but uh, where Emea's flesh becomes the soil, his bones become the mountains, and his blood becomes the sea. But there are similarities, just like with the Earth a motif, But yeah, I I used the loon diver from phenobaltic story worlds as a way to resolve these discrepancies between Verlusbauer and Snurri's version of the Emi story. Now, after I wrote Norse Mythology for Kids, the publisher uh, approached me about another book. Their data mining had yielded that a lot of people were searching for things like also true or heathen and pagan Nordic religion and so on. And so they asked me if I was interested in writing a book about that. I was a little more reserved about doing that And it's because I do not view myself as someone uh, who has much business telling my fellow heathens out there how to be heathens. I want you all to think independently, as I mentioned. And I was of the opinion that I should be using my academic knowledge to strictly disseminate historical information that heathens and others could then use as they please. But after some reflection and my own personal ganga til fretta, that action of looking for guidance that they talk about in the sagas, I came to the conclusion that I'd write that book. I'd, of course, seen what heathens were discussing out there in various groups and organizations and in cyberspace. I'd seen squabbles and the arguments, the meltdowns, and the many, many, let's just say curious, in my opinion at least, interpretations of people who have set themselves up as heathen influencers and authors and such with few credentials. So I thought that I'd at least give my contribution, my perspective, in a respectful way, a way that didn't straight up reject the many claims about our traditions that I personally find outlandish, but at the same time also didn't support them. And that's because I think it's important that people find their own way in this and create their own thoughts, and if so inclined, also make their own mistakes. So I wrote this in my view, cautious and balanced representation of our tradition from the perspective of my person as someone, in this matter, who stands between academic knowledge and the position of a practitioner who has been raised with the tradition. As a result, I did what I could to avoid telling people what to do. As you may have heard in the episode on family sovereignty, episode number seven of this podcast, it is my opinion that heathen practices should take Form from what each ait believes is right to do. There shouldn't be any dogma, any official way of doing things, only the traditions of the iteer, A myriad of aitir, like that one at Hof that Sigvater encountered. A myriad of iteer who can and should have the prerogative only to share their customs with those they find worthy by their own autonomous standards. Now, since I published the book, I've gotten questions from readers about why I don't describe more in depth what kinds of rituals there are and how to do them. In fact, as as far as I'm aware, it's the most common serious critique of my book. Well, the reason is that I won't tell people how to do rituals I won't give you a recipe for that. The reason I don't give people a recipe is that there is not a single form. There is, as I said, no dogma, no liturgy no authority on how you should connect with spirits. There are some literary sources from a period in European history which was very different from our time. The saga literature, the historical literature from Scandinavia, and so on. In my opinion, that literature is not particularly applicable to our current way of life. And as an author of a book on on the modern way of connecting with the Nordic spirits, I, of course, have the same problem as the heathen community at Hof in, a- in Eidskog. I have no personal relationship with, my, with most of my readers. The way that I do ritual belongs to my Eid. It doesn't belong to everyone. It will be taught to the people that I connect with on a much deeper level than in a transaction on Amazon where someone orders a book or a moment where they listen to my voice on this podcast, for instance. And there are so many reasons for that. The most important one for me is that ritual knowledge isn't just an intellectual pursuit. It's not simply something that can be written down and told in words. It has to be experienced to learn, to be learned in a tactile sense, a bodiless sense. It has to be learned as a communication in person of words and actions in the presence of material things, whatever they may be, by one person experiencing these things from another person, there can be no class on it, there can be no book on it. If you want to know what I do, you'll have to know me well as a person, not as an author or a podcaster or an academic, a spiritual leader or whatever title you or someone else may have given me, which reduces, essentially reduces my being to a technical function in other people's universes. Personhood is at the core of learning this knowledge, and it's not just my personhood, it's also the personhood of the material things that are present that requires presence, it requires time and intimacy. So I have personally only taught a few people what I know and do when it comes to rituals. And I've only taught these people very few things, hardly all of it. And along the way, I've even had to stop teaching some people what I know, because even though we thought we knew each other, we did not know each other on that level, on a level where the person is seen, heard, and understood The level where there are no labels, no artificial boundaries created around the individual. The level where there's only thøler and lottvagnir. I use the terminology from the historic tradition because it's impossible for me to translate it. And if that comes off as mystical to you, I do apologize. But it's because it cannot be reduced to a meaning in the English language. And it's important to understand that understand that a ritual and for lack of better modern English word magical universe if it truly rests in a land based tradition it cannot be translated it cannot be ripped from its physical context from its inherent emplacement in the world the, the the feeling of the fire present at the ritual the smell of the smoke the smell of the soil the smell of the trees the smell of the grass the smell of the plants the feeling of the wind is not something that can be translated in a retelling, and if you try, you'll find that misunderstandings, misconceptions, misappropriations will invariably occur. If you try, you'll end up with a ritual spectacle, a ritual only performed for those for the purpose of charismatic politics, a ritual that's only for display. Ritual like the one that you find in a church or mosque where all attendants are there to listen to a preacher and follow his words and go do his deeds. Now, a couple of good examples of how ritual actions that I do cannot really be translated out of their in-place contexts are actually two superficial hints I do give in the book. In the book, I mentioned that I use white sage in some instances and that I give rum and salt to Loki in other instances. Now some people have asked me about source references for the rum and salt thing. Others have concluded that it don't live up to my academic credentials because rum wasn't invented in the Viking Age, and there are no sources that record any rituals to Loki. Others have asked me for my reasoning behind it. Some have categorized me in a certain way as like a Lokian for even having a ritual to Loki and so on. But... Going to the reasoning behind it, there are so many levels to why I do that in my head. But what it really boils down to with the rum is that I like rum. That's really it. There's no mystery to that and no source to back it up. I've of course also been asked why I don't offer beer or mead instead of rum, since rum is not a Nordic beverage. Well, neither beer nor mead is particularly Nordic either. It's not any more Nordic than it is Egyptian or Ethiopian. Are we forgetting about wine in that as well? Wine is explicitly mentioned in the Nordic story world as a drink for Odin. Yet I rarely see people offering wine to him. And and I also rarely see, I don't know, Vikings sitting and sipping a nice glass of Chardonnay or something like that, right? So, what's our selection of beer and meat actually based on here? What's the reasoning behind giving those particular beverages to the spirits? Well, I land on stereotypes. Stereotypes devised from the limited literature that we have available from the Nordic region. A reading of these sources that subsequently leads to a reduction of the pre Christian culture and ancient Scandinavians to a specific form of life a negotiation of the texts that entirely relies on what we want to read into it. Rum can't be offered to Nordic spirits because it comes from the Caribbean. Mead is proper Viking. Um, we forget about wine because Vikings and wine glasses don't mix or something like that. Sure, man. Sugarcane, for instance, came from the Eastern Pacific and found its way to my country of origin, Denmark, in the 14th century, by way of India, where sugar had become a popular commodity already in the 300s BCE. The 14th century is earlier than, you know, one of the versions of the Vinland saga. Now, it's a coincidence of history that this sugarcane ended up as a primary commodity grown by kidnapped Africans in the Caribbean and then to be sold in the European markets. And the country where I was born, I it became one of the sugar centers of Europe in 1733, thanks to our newly acquired slave colonies in St. Croix, St. John, and St. Thomas, the islands now known as the U.S. Virgin Islands. Now, as a result, Flensburg, which is now the northernmost large town in Germany, uh, was once a Danish city, and it became the rum capital of the north. Now, there's a lot I can say about that history of sugar and rum, which also has relevance to why I use it. But that's beyond the scope of this episode. I just have a lot of personal history with Flensburg, rum, and all of that. And and then I have, of course, a lot of thoughts about what kind of spirit, spirit Loki is and what role he plays in the Nordic story world, at least for myself. So the practice of giving rum to Loki emerged sometime, decades ago at this point. And Salt has a similar story in my world. Salt is, contrary to what you might think, one of the most important minerals today. Without it, there would be no pharmaceutical or food industry. Salt was the most important component of lasting food supplies in Scandinavia back in the day, indeed in all of Europe until in the invention of refrigeration. In Denmark, salt was traditionally made from drying up seawater and collecting the residual salt. But in the 1920s, geological salt deposits were found in a location in Denmark that also happens to be where part of my family comes from. And then there's the folklore aspects of salt. Salt has a prominent role in folklore as a medium to ward off unfriendly spirits in everything from throwing it over your shoulders to lining your doorstep with it to fears of spilling salt on the table and so on. So it's very culturally relevant. And those are just some of the thoughts that have uh, gone into my use of salt as an offering to Loki. But what about the white sage? Well, as a white guy writing in my book that I make use of sage, I've, of course, gotten called out for cultural appropriation because it's an indigenous plant used by some indigenous groups. And a few years back, there was a bit of an uproar uh, about how large-scale commercialization of white sage was undermining local uses in places like California. You can check the article in the show notes where Helen Berger explains why buying sage at Walmart is cultural appropriation. But... Just like with the rum, my usage of that particular plant comes as a result of a personal history with it. Never mind how I was taught to use it, that's not a matter for public knowledge. When I wrote the book, I was living in an area where white sage literally grew in my backyard. The plant, a medicinal plant with a deep history in this area, had presented itself to me in the place where I lived. I have a deep personal history with it, as one of the plants that grow in the spot where I, at the time, practiced my land-based spirituality, where connected with the, my world. That plant belongs in that universe of place knowledge and story-making, sense-making, that is my reality, which has emerged through ritual communication with my cosmos. Like the mountain that brings the wind, the red pine mothers guarding the passage up to the sun rock, the aspen children in the grove nearby, the elf rock in between, and all the other things in my little world, the white sage that I collected by hand in ceremony had a very distinct role and meaning in my world. Buying a sage bundle in Walmart and using it for ritual cleansing or something like that would certainly, in my opinion, be cultural appropriation because in that scenario, Walmart is capitalizing off a general trend where consumers view Native American practices as cool and edgy and thus mimic their culture in a one-directional motion taking what they want and giving nothing in return. After that transaction, Native American communities are no less marginalized, no less undermined than they have been for centuries. And that is why when I wrote about White Sage in my book, I never thought about people might going out there and buying it. But the thing about the subject of cultural appropriation is that there are two primary aspects to cultural appropriation a formal one and an informal one. Now, formal aspects of cultural appropriation are the ones that play out in court and are discussed by scholars of law, such as Sally Mary in her article Law, Culture, and Cultural Appropriation from 1998, which you can find on the website of Yale Journal of Law and the Humanities that I've linked to in the show notes. What we get from formal legal practices concerning the subject and scholarly debates about it is that the intersection of law and culture is incredibly complex and that, it, and that this matter should be handled with extreme care. On the other hand, we have these informal aspects of cultural appropriation, particularly in public attitudes, where these issues are reduced to various stereotypes. And that's what you're probably more familiar with from internet conversations on the subject and that kind of stuff. And it's, of course, in that context that reactions to what I wrote in that book have been expressed. Now, the very valid form, formal aspects of cultural appropriation aside, what I can observe is that the informal conversations about white sage rest on the same principles as the critique of my usage of rum, a fantasy about how skin color is the sum of identity and equates culture, which in turn corresponds to what plants you can use. I'm categorized as white, so therefore I'm not allowed to pick a certain plant, essentially. And such thinking is, unfortunately, reinforced by some academics, too. Scholars who are more activists than academics, who reduce the complex matter to blanket statements, the very opposite of what academia is actually for. And Here's an example of that from a class on cultural appropriation that you can find on School of the Art Institute in Chicago. I've linked to that one in the show notes as well. Quote, Cultural appropriation is the act of taking or using things from a culture that is not your own, especially without showing that you understand or respect this culture, end quote. So like this reduction of cultural appropriation is a far cry from the complexity of the phenomenon described in Salimiri's article, for instance. Any discerning individual would, of course, have to ask, what does it mean to say your own? And that's where it gets really murky in the modern world, especially in a country like the U.S. You know, with the invention of the white race as the favorite group of the merchant elite that keeps governmental power in its hands here, at all times, propped up by charismatic politics, by the way, white people in America have become the primary consumer group. And this means that they have traded their cultural origin in for a material comfort. And that means that things that have been used historically by one of the groups that was not favored by the consumer system are then out of bounds for the primary consumer group. But there's a logical problem in all of this. And here's an example of a logical problem with this. As soon as something ends up on a shelf in one of the consumer hubs like Walmart, it's been included in the consumer repertoire like burgers, burgers, plastic products, cheap clothes with glittery logos, banjos, poorly manufactured shovels, garden furniture, baseball caps, flat-screen TVs, and whatever else you can find in Walmart. In that process, the including of the material into the consumer repertoire, the main consumer base may now call that product their own. But on an even deeper level, one must, of course, ask what it even means to claim ownership over a culture, a plant, an object that some humans made or used decades, centuries, millennia ago. Um, Obviously, there are some fundamental differences here um, between my personal situation and Native American communities. But if I go to my personal situation um, as somebody with a background in Denmark, well, pork rinds are a traditional staple of Danish cuisine. They're everywhere over there. But when I, as someone who li- who's lived for quite a while in Denmark, get a little nostalgic for that country's cuisine here in Colorado, I'll need to go to a bodega run by Mexicans to get the pork products that are integral to what is over there considered Danish identity, I guess. Because here in America, Mexicans make pork products that are very similar to the southern Scandinavians. We Scandinavians also have a piñata tradition, essentially. We don't do it for birthdays and such things. We only do it once a year for our version of Mardi Gras, or Fat Tuesday, which in southern Scandinavia and northern Germany is called Festelauen. It's the exact same holiday as Mardi Gras in New Orleans, except it's freezing cold and feels more like Halloween, and instead of getting flooded with drunk tourists, you just beat barrels with candy in them. Now, the barrels are dressed up in festive decorations, but are obviously harder to destroy than piñatas that are made mostly of paper and cardboard. Nonetheless, it's a very similar tradition. So the question is who owns such things as chicharrones and piñatas, Mexicans or Danes? But personally, I don't care. I don't consider fried pork skin particularly important for my culture. To the contrary, I just like the taste of it and I have no pin- uh, position when it comes to piñatas or barrels. But it's not hard to imagine how that food product or a tradition of beating a barrel or piñata could become the eye of some storm about cultural appropriation under the right circumstances, similar to what happened to the balmy sandwich at Oberlin College in 2019. Check that one in the show notes too. So yeah, I mean, according to some people uh, with that perspective, Um, I guess I would have to import some kind of plant uh, native to southern Scandinavia for my ritual practices because uh, I guess my body is intrinsically tied to that plot of land out there, like Jetlandic heather or something like that. And I don't think it takes an economic genius or a climate scientist to tally up just how ridiculous an economic cost or climate footprint it would create for me to have Scandinavian heather, cherubith, or some other plant flown in from northern Europe. Just so I can be appropriate for my perceived race in accordance with opinions that take shape in internet bu- bubbles, regardless of whatever constitutes my identity, otherwise, outside of what they can see. I could, of course, go to the local witchcraft at a physical new age store and buy some cervin. Cervin, there, a Palo Santo looking little stick of wood, is marketed as a traditional Scandinavian sacred cleansing wood. Now, as Scandinavian, I'm familiar with chevet. I know it as a traditional means to make fire, not as something particularly sacred. You deep bark and cut pine trees a certain way in so that the sap will run down and soak the base of the tree. And then at some point, you cut little sticks out of the base and use them for igniting your bonfire or your wood stove. A very utilitarian process, nothing sacred or magical about that unless, of course, if you want there to be. Now, I can buy these at the local witch's store, or I can order a whole box of fat wood, which is essentially the same thing from Billy Buckskin on the internet, and get, as the website says, 100% natural fire starters for my wood stove. And if I so please, I guess also I suppose Scandinavian version of Palo Santo or something. Or I can go out into my yard or the natural world that surrounds me right there where I live and find the plants I need for whatever my purpose is, ritual, ceremonial, mundane, you name it. Knowing the land, interacting with it. Getting stuff shipped, ordering and paying for it over the internet has considerably higher costs on everything from the environment to humanity than me moving my feet uh, a couple hundred yards up a mountainside and picking a plant by myself. You can, of course, argue that I'm missing something because of my privilege. That's not impossible, but we should also consider that privilege is a fickle thing. As for myself, I embody a variety of identities, some of which, in terms of my eitbund, were not always considered white or even civilized or anything like that in a Scandinavian context. What must be considered in this matter, though, is that there is no magic in clicking a couple of buttons on a website or walking into a store, paying with a debit card, getting something shipped from Amazon or putting something in a little tote bag and getting back into your car and driving home. However, there's all the magic in the world in a situation where you make the effort to find a place that's meaningful to you establish the important connections to that place and its spirits and all the living beings there, ritually communicating with, with these beings and the plant that you need, for instance, picking it at a certain time of day or night, in a certain type of sun or moonlight, in a certain wind, after a certain weather event, when there's a certain level of humidity in the air, or after a certain kind of animal has passed through a certain location, or after you've heard a certain call from a certain bird. There's as much magic in that as you want, as you care to see, as you care to feel, as you care to know. And if you learn from the right people, you'll also learn why there's magic in that, why it makes sense, and what it's good for. Thank you for listening.